Let's grab a seat. Let's get going. Great to see all of you. Sean, could you uh, hit the preaching lights here? That'd be great. Thanks, bro. It is amazing to have you guys here. I am uh, incredibly excited to uh, see all of you. You look so beautiful, and I can barely see you, but I know and trust that you do. I have many questions to ask you tonight, um, but it's all going to begin with here. Um, how much of your life would you say is spent sizing up? Uh, in other words, how much time do you spend looking at others and comparing and contrasting? Uh, things go through your mind like, she's got a better husband than I do. Their, their kids are a disaster, right? They have better perks uh, than we do. They're, he seems more happy than me. It seems like, like her uh, choice of life path was a much better decision than mine. Why does it seem like all the good things happen to... To them. And then like, they're just like silly things, catty things, right, that we compare and contrast. Like, well, at least he's fatter than me, you know what I'm saying? Or, or, or like, he hugs weird, right? And you're comparing and contrasting, have you ever thought that? Like, he just comes in too fast, you know, like a scud missile. Like, dude, take it easy. Like, gentle, nice and slow, you know, we'll figure this out. Um, how much of your time is spent... Sizing up. In fact, let me say it this way. Would you say the majority of your life, as it pertains to your relationships with others, is spent sizing up, comparing, and contrasting? Uh, It's interesting how young this starts. Um, I'm a big fan of the road trip. Anyone else? Any road trip fans here? Love the road trip. Uh, There's many reasons to like a road trip. For me, uh, the biggest reason to, to love a road trip is the food that you convince yourself is okay eating. Um, it doesn't matter how many gas stations we stop at, at a, a, on a road trip. I am for sure going to get a tremendous amount of food at every single one. Anyone else like me? It's like a road trip is a phenomenal excuse just to be like, listen, this whole road is just a big buffet. And, and any truck stop or random gas station that only, like even if they only serve like three-day-old donuts, have you ever convinced yourself they still look okay in that moment, you know? Like it's, you're like in the middle of the country, right? And there's a sign that says these are four days old, but you're still like, man, that Long John, right? I know there's some flies on the chocolate there, but this still looks good. I mean, I'm pretty sure on a long road trip I consume at least 17 bags of a Cool Ranch Doritos. Anywho... Uh, I'm trying to teach my children young about the road trip, and, uh, and so right before any time my family travels, uh, we always stop at my uh, favorite pre-road trip stop. That would be the trip of Quick, right? Any fans of the QT? Again, I've talked about it many times uh, before here. I, if you've been here for a while, I would, you probably think that I'm sinfully obsessed. That may be true, but we'll talk about that later. Um, so it never fails. I open the, the side of the sliding door, the nice convenient power doors on my um, minivan, and I asked my children, okay, uh, kids, what bag of chips would you like today, right? Because we're road tripping, and you know what goes with a road trip. It's a good bag of chips. So, so everyone, like, puts in their nomination, right? So Avery's, she's, I, I want potato chips. Okay, that's a little bit general, but I, I'm going to try to pick something out. Uh, Dawson's favorite is the Fritos. Any Frito fans? Like the little, okay, and he likes them. And then Maddox is like, you know, and, oh, okay, uh, cheese curls it is. Like, we're going to go with it. And, uh. So then I go into Quick Trip, and man, I'm so excited. I'm like the dad who's providing. You know, I've got Heidi's uh, Diet Mountain Dew or Diet Coke, whatever her uh, flavor was that day. I have my, and, and then I, I disperse the bag of chips. Never fails. Uh, close the sliding door. I sit in my uh, captain's chair getting ready to lock and load in the driver's position um, as if my, my minivan's a race car. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and um, 
and uh, give it like three or four seconds, and, and all of my children already want each other's bag. Like, like Avery sees Dawson's Fritos, and she, even though she had picked them, like she, you know, she's looking at her bag and looking at Dawson's bag, and it sure seems like he's enjoying that bag, you know? And so just, it's so crazy how we're born into this constant compare and contrast. It's like we're always looking at each other, and we're, we're wondering if what they have is better than what we've got. Other, of course, good comparing. Sometimes you have compared yourself with others, and it's encouraged you, right? I'm certainly not saying that all comparing is negative. I mean, there's been times where you've watched someone, man or woman of God, who has encouraged your pursuit of him. You've been challenged by their passion. You've loved the way that they love their wives or husbands, whatever it is. And in those moments, we're spurred on. I'm not talking about that here. I'm talking about the danger of the compare and contrast that for many of you has caused a tremendous amount of misery where the majority of your time around others is spent constantly going through that sizing up list and it's making you miserable. It's no wonder why we struggle loving people. We'll spend two years or even two days of a relationship embedded with this compare and contrast. And so I sit back from that even recognizing the sin in my own life. My own struggles, the amount of times that I'm measuring up or sizing up, and I, and I say there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way of interacting with others when we're not constantly riddled with the size up mentality. And if you're here tonight, um, the better way has come through the scripture as it typically does, right? So I want you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Again, still feel like I'm cheating on Hebrews 11 by saying that. We're now fresh out of a Hebrews 11 by two weeks. Uh, Only two chapters left here in Hebrew should only take us a good four or five months. Um, Last week we saw uh, this amazing passage, a very famous passage in verses 1 and 2. I'm actually going to read those verses uh, first. And then tonight we will read uh, verse 3 and 4 of chapter 12. That's right, another week of two verses. Here we go. Let's begin in verse 1 where we started last week. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? To Jesus, my friends, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And here we go, our two verses for tonight. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You're like, seems pretty cut and dry. Fair enough. Let's give it a gander and see what happens. Uh, You remember last week, uh, my challenge was that this little phrase, how are you, can be our biggest reminder of the gospel. How many times have you heard it this week? Have you noticed a difference? I've heard the question, I've been trying to keep track, I lost track at like 287, uh, literally, like I I was trying to keep this mental mental tally. I've been asked the question so many times, and for me at least, I've been so refreshed, though there's been many instances in the past seven days where I have struggled, been challenged, been burdened, it's been such a reminder of the gospel, and I hope for you too. So coming out of last week, now we see this beautiful verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
In other words, this week, he's going to give us the preventative answer for being weary or faint-hearted. You see what I'm saying? So that you may not grow. In other words, there's something that prevents, remember last week, the weight and the burdens of our life from making us weary or faint-hearted. Last week the word was weight. Uh, the first, let's start with weary. The better word is sick. The better word is completely put in despair. It's like you're, you're so burdened that it's, it's causing you to be, have you ever been so burdened way down with life that you felt physical sickness? In fact, I would say a lot of times when the stress of life has come down on you, aren't those the times when like all of a sudden you've got the black lung, you know what I mean? Like you get sick, you get the flu, whatever, it's times when you're worn down. Uh, faint-hearted, the, the better understanding of that is like simply I'm so weak at the knees that I literally could just like faint on my face right now. Like, so there's something in us, some possibility, some preventative answer to becoming weary or faint-hearted. Quick question, have you ever felt that way, weary or faint-hearted? Right, like have you ever felt that way? As for me in my house, uh, it seems as though I have those feelings that come in me quite often. So, if there is an answer to that, then I better pay close attention. Are you with me? If there's some preventative thing that you and I can do to battle the weariness and the faint-heartedness, then we better give great gaze to the Scripture. And so the answer we see here is in the first part of verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The hymn, of course, is Christ. And I want you to see how backwards this is. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. Jesus, of course, as the scripture claims, was sinless. Never sinned. The Bible talks about him being tempted. But he never sinned. So here we see a picture of the sinless in Jesus taking on hostility from the sinful. How backward is the very premise of our Savior? Isaiah 53, listen to this. Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed and afflicted and did not open his mouth. The sinful were oppressing the sinless. And the scripture says, He endured. He took it. Isaiah 53 prophesied, He didn't open his mouth. And yet you and I, when innocent and claimed guilty will react by putting our arms up and wailing a carnival around us, aren't we? It's a, it's a very similar situation to O.J. Simpson, right? Innocent, uh, very innocent, and other people think he's guilty. You know, very similar premise. Um, apparently, you guys don't remember O.J. You guys know? <laughs> Maybe this will ring a bell. It's very similar to Courtney in The Bachelor. Uh, very innocent, though, though many people are wrongfully saying she's guilty. Quick uh, note on The Bachelor. Uh, it may seem strange to you that I know that answer, and it's not because I watch it, because I feel like it's female porn. Um, but, uh, I, and I'm not, I don't want to uh, nag on my wife at all, but every once in a while I'll walk in the room, and she'll, you know, have this uh, television show on called The Bachelor. And so I was asking her last night, like, what's going on here? And she's like, this, like, this crazy Courtney chick is just like, r- how many of you guys just want to confess right now you watch The Bachelor, right? Okay. All right. Three of you, and we need to pause right now because there were several liars right there. <laughs> there are several dudes who are like getting on YouTube, like I wonder who he's going to pick, you know. 
Later, we're going to have a prayer service just for you. Anyways, could you imagine, listen, could you imagine being completely innocent and yet being put in a place of guilt that it would take your life, the thoughts, the things that would be going in your mind? Now, of course, the innocence of Christ was that he was the Son of God and they thought he wasn't. They were looking for something else. They were looking for someone more powerful. They were looking for someone in a different stature. So when he says, yes, like I am who you say I am, I am the Son of God. That's who I am. His innocence is they're saying that he's not, but he in fact is. And so this beautiful picture of the scripture is that Jesus, the sinless, takes on the hostility of the sinful, and what does the Bible say? He endures it. So the reader or the writer here of Hebrews says, Consider him. Look to Jesus when you come to moments of hostility. Because in looking at Jesus, then you will not grow weary or faint hearted because he was sinless and endured the hostility. I think there's a lot of questions, though, that come from that image. The questions spur on what's your natural tendency when you come to moments of hostility? Of course, In the case of Jesus, we're talking about persecution, trial, tribulation. So I think for us, we can expand even the understanding of persecution. Just ask these, um, rather look at these common reactions to hostility, trial, or hardship. I think one of our initial responses to it is, many of you guys are ignorers. You come to hostility, and instead of enduring, instead of fighting through it, instead of working through it, you're someone who pushes it aside tucks it underneath the sheets. You hope it just doesn't come back tomorrow. You hope that by shutting your eyes and acting as if it's not present, that somehow it just magically goes away. Does it ever seem to do that? And yet we convince ourselves over and over and over that by ignoring it, it's just gone. So many of you guys uh, are that way. Secondly, when you come to hostility, trial, and hardship, uh, many of you uh, just get in this instant depression, this woe is me, this looking in the mirror and no one has it worse than me. Do you understand the point of the text here? Consider him. Look to Jesus. He endured the sinless from the sinful all the way to the cross. You consider him when you come to moments of hostility. You battle through your woe is me mentality, your depression, the self-loathing thoughts. In fact, I have told you before here that I believe woe is me is more prideful and arrogant than thinking that you're amazing. Woe is me gathers more thoughts around self than thinking that, you know, that you're king of the world. So many of you guys are that. Uh, this is a great, great, great one, and I, this is very prevalent on the book of face. Uh, many of you guys gather supporters. Every once in a while, again, you know I'm not on Facebook, but every once in a while, uh, uh, similar to The Bachelor, I'll be looking at my wife's uh, heathen uh, Facebook thing on the computer. It's not heathen, I'm just joking, just mostly heathen. And... Um, And I'll notice like sometimes when people are having a bad day, something goes wrong, they think somehow by posting it for the world to see that that's the best approach. Because in doing so, they're going to gather a bunch of supporters, the texts are going to start flying in, the liking to having a bad day is going to start happening. (laughs) I've had a bad day. Oh yeah, I like that. I like you, you know. I don't even understand that. It doesn't make, it makes no sense to me. But that's what many of you guys do because you think that when you come to trial hardship, 
that the best thing to do is to gather a bunch of people around you to say it's going to be okay. I've done this many times. There's still something fleeting about the words of man, isn't there? It doesn't really quite cut it, does it? I mean, it helps for some moments. The great words of a parent that you love and respect, your BFF that breathes some words of encouragement in a bad day, those at times can be helpful. But it still doesn't quite get it done, and that's our writer's point. The last thing, and I think uh, we were talking about this in staff, I think is a big uh, trouble for many of you. You guys overanalyze. So you come to moments of trial, tribulation, even hostility about your faith, and you instantly work out all the scenarios. You build an Excel spreadsheet, or for me, a Google document, and you're instantly like setting it all up. Like, well, if this happens, I know this stinks, but if we can get through this, then eventually, and you're like, your mind never stops. Some of you in trial, you, it's like all here, right? It's heart. Others of you, you cannot sleep because your mind will not shut off. What I'm asking each of you guys, when you have come to moments, hostility for your faith, you're being condemned, ridiculed, or even just general trial and tribulation, which of these four are you turning to most often? Where do you find yourself on this list? What the scripture says to do is none of these. The scripture says, listen, you don't do any four of these. You know what you do? You consider Jesus, that's what you do. You focus on the character of Christ. And when you get consumed with who he is, all of a sudden these things and even your situation seems to fade away. But the trouble is weariness and faint-heartedness are pretty intense, aren't they? Uh, I know many of you guys know that I have a deep affinity for minivans, specifically mine. I love minivans, I'm obsessed with them, Uh, I have two of them. Uh, Problem is, and someone should have told me this, I know nothing about vehicles, when you buy a minivan for about as much as it costs uh, for 20 frozen pizzas, you might have some problems with it, okay? (laughs) I bought my particular minivan uh, on a whim and a prayer for a few uh, bucks, and I've had perpetual problems with it. It doesn't negate my love for it. Anytime I sit in it, it makes me happy, but still, I've had a lot of problems with it. And uh, this, this pesky uh, thing started overheating, uh, actually a, a little while ago, and I thought my, th- my thermometer was just broken, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, surely my van can't be overheating, I mean, I checked my fluids like last year, you know, I'm sh- which isn't bad, think about it, it's January, right, or February. And, uh, and so this thing just keeps overheating, the thermometer's blowing up. So I take, uh, take it into my favorite mechanic here. I'll go ahead and give a shameless plug. Bud's uh, Automotive down on 3rd Street. He's amazing. Big goatee. Love the guy. So I bring it in. He's like, you're here again, huh? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what's going on? He's, I'm like, it's overheating again. He's like, okay, third time this month. Anyway, um, so I go in and this whole, uh, my head gasket blew. And again, I don't know anything about cars. He, they said that's significant, okay? So I don't, it, for those of you that are mechanics, you know what that means. Well, earlier that day, uh, Heidi's van was in the shop. So I got double minivan in the shop, okay? This is, and I know it seems frivolous, trite maybe, but I was sitting up here a couple days ago, like starting to think about all the money that I was going to have to invest in all these vehicles. It's a very real life scenario. And I, honestly, I started to get a little bit weary. It's like, I'm not sure where like this money's going to come from, like i Money doesn't grow around trees around here. You know, I'm not a 
a paper boy on the side. You know, I don't know like what to do here. And there was a sense of weariness. There was a, there was a sense of tension in me. Why? Because feelings, listen, feelings are pretty powerful, aren't they? And once you start getting consumed in them, something as simple as the dollars that it's going to take to repair a couple minivans, which in the scheme of things is nothing, the feeling of that weariness starts to weigh, doesn't it? And what the writer is saying here is, listen, there's a preventative measure for that. There's something that can prevent all of that, all of the feeling, all of the emotion. It's truth. Instead of being fueled by emotion, you let truth dictate your emotion. It doesn't negate feelings. It just changes the phrase. Instead of being consumed by my emotions, now listen, I feel the truth. You see what I'm saying? And when I get consumed in the character of Christ, then my emotions are fueled with awe, with worship, with the glory of who he is with the putting all of my measly situations in the proper perspective. But I fear what you and I have done is we're trying to discover who we are first. That's what emotions do. They gather all attention on you and me, myself, and I. Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? What job am I supposed to have? How am I going to figure this situation out? And then what we try to do is add in God's character as little band-aids into our broken identity. See what I'm saying? We don't consider Jesus, we consider 1-800-YOSELF, right? And then in doing so, it just fuels further depression. Oh, oh okay, yeah, so here I'm discovering who I am. God, thank you, God, so much for who you are. So here's a couple God band-aids to this identity that I've realized is me. That's not what the writer's saying to do. The writer is saying, listen, you consider the character of God first, and then you see you in light of the character of God. And what starts happening when you consider him first is you can't help but get enveloped in who he is all the time. It seems like we say this every week. But my friends, listen, does it ever get old? It shouldn't. Does the love, the faithfulness, the graciousness of our God ever get old? That's why the writer says, listen, you come to moments like this, you consider him, and guess what? You're going to see a phenomenal example of the Christ who took on death, though he was completely innocent and sinless. And then maybe in your little minivan thing, or your troubled relationship, or all these things that seem to hold so much value in our life, get diminished, even some of the most important, just because of who he is. That's why he says consider. Are you guys with me? This tension in us pushes down our emotions and exalts the person of Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful text. Next slide. So let's sum up here this verse 3. Look to Jesus, who endured this hostility against himself, and in doing so, you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Next slide, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This should be interesting. 
Um, the readers of Hebrews, or the hearers, if this was a sermon, are Jewish Christians. They're Jews who have a faith in who God is. They're Jews who are wrestling with how to live it out. And by nature, we saw in chapter 10, they, they aren't martyred yet. Apparently, in this particular area of the world, these particular Jews have not been killed. Uh, chapter 10 alludes to their persecution, but none of them yet have shed their blood. And so, first let's read this from the perspective of the, of the, of the actual readers. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You haven't died yet in fighting for your sin or against it. And so because of that, what we saw in verse 3, consider now you need to compare yourself to Jesus. It's one thing to consider Jesus, think on him, meditate on him, get enveloped in his character. It's a whole other thing to compare yourself. And when you start comparing yourself, what he says is this. Uh, yeah, he, in his struggle against sin, led him to his death. Well, what would have been a sin? Giving in. Not going to the cross. Remember Peter? Listen, Jesus, you don't have to suffer. Don't worry about that whole cross thing. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. It would have been sin for Jesus to stop short of the cross because that's why God had sent him. Are you with me? God sends Jesus, born to die, and if he stops in the Garden of Gethsemane, which Scripture records Jesus praying and pleading Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. And the scripture alludes to him bleeding drops of blood in his prayer. If he stops short, it's sin. But we should compare ourselves to Christ because he doesn't. He endures all the way in his battle against sin until he dies. I have a lot of questions about battling sin that are spurred from this. If you guys feel like you're in a battle right now, Something specific, like you got World War II going on against some particular sin of yours. But for some reason in you, it just feels like you're not going anywhere. It feels like you're like, you got the boxing gloves on and you're just swinging at air. Any of you guys feel that way? Like for a year, you've been trying to knock this particular sin, whatever it may be. And for whatever reason, you feel like the battle is being lost. You feel like there's nowhere to go. You feel like you're just hitting the air. You have, you think some desire to fight. I want to ask you guys a couple questions just about your fight with sin. The first is this. What are you battling against? I hear Christians all the time saying, yeah, I'm just like, so I'm fighting this sin. And, and often when I ask, okay, so what is that? They can't even articulate what it is. Well, you know, it's this one, like, I just, I really struggle, like, with this one little thing over here. No, no. Like, what are you battling against? The scripture says our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's, it's against the rulers and authorities. So there's a certain level against the enemy, certainly, but is it pride? Is it jealousy? Is it gossip? See, we also often just look at the result. Like, I'm really, really struggling with XYZ sin instead of getting to the root of it. Have you seen the rumor weed on VeggieTales? Have you seen that? Right? you got to get to the root, man. You don't get to the root, I problema. You know what I'm saying? A little Spanish there for the bilingual, right? Right? <laughs> so in your battle against sin, the first thing you have to do is just identify tonight what, what it is you're battling against. 
What starts happening, you know this, is when you're fighting the air, pretty soon you lose sight of what it is you're, you're even fighting for. You remembered like six months ago, but you become weary, faint-hearted, ready to throw in the towel, knowing that you should fight. And so in doing so, you're just, God, I don't even know what it is anymore, but please help me. Second question I have for you in your fight against sin is this. What is your weaponry? I just always have wanted to put weaponry on a slide before. Here's, here's my chance. The reason I ask this question is so heavy on my heart tonight. I've had the chance uh, the last several weeks to sit with so many people uh, who are coming to faith and believing in Jesus. It's been an awesome season. Love it. And what I'm watching in the conversations happen is there's this natural tendency in me right away now, and I've never noticed this before, but as these people are saying, like, yes, I want to know Jesus, I'm catching myself instantly telling them about their weaponry. Like, instantly telling them, listen, 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 you're going to hear a whole lot of people say a lot of things, and you're going to think that this book seems somewhat intimidating, you know? And you've heard people say, like, the Bible's so confusing. Let me tell you something. Like when you become a Christian, the Bible says that God's spirit resides in us. And, and I'm, I'm serious, and you guys know this. Before you were a Christian, you read this book, and what does the word say about it? Like it was foolishness, right? Like you read it, it didn't make sense. Like the stories, they just seemed in error almost. They, they seemed too far-fetched. You come to Christ, start believing, and I'm not saying that every T and, and every I all of a sudden instantly makes sense, but man, it certainly changes your perspective, doesn't it? But for some reason, the fear of when we weren't Christians drives our fear about the word as Christians. Because too many non-Christians or or new believers aren't seeing believers in in God's word. We have a new intern here, Elwich Walker. Love the guys from Bahamas. One of the things I love about uh, this man, not only is uh, he from the Bahamas, which makes me instantly jealous of him, speaking of comparing, anyway... uh, but every, every, anytime I walk in the office and he's around, the word is open. I was commenting on a, a family here in the, the church community. Anytime I'm over at their house, the word is open on, on their little nightstand. And I, I'm not saying that, that that means they're reading it, right? Maybe they just knew I was coming over, right? The pastor's coming over. Like, open all of our Bibles, you know? <laughs> open some commentaries, too. Like, he'll appreciate that, you know? But what I am saying, it's so encouraging to know that there are some who know what their weaponry is. But weariness and faint-heartedness do what in, in the battle against sin? They close this up, they look in the mirror, and you find yourself on a hamster wheel every day being beaten down and beaten down and beaten down. What does the writer say? Listen, it could be worse You haven't come to a moment yet where there's a gun pointed at your head and someone's saying porn or die. Go ahead. You keep struggling with porn or you confess Jesus. Which one? Jesus comes to the point of it's either sin, I stop short of the cross, or I die. He endures. He gets there. He finishes the race as we saw in the last two verses of chapter 12. Are you with me? So you start looking to him You start considering him. You start comparing yourself to Jesus because it could be way worse. And that's the last thing you ever want to hear when you're in the pit, isn't it? 
How many of your friends have ever come over, you've had a horrible day, and they're like, yeah, man, it could be worse. And then they tell you about one of their situations where it was worse, and don't you just want to kick them in the face? Because you're a support gatherer, right? Like you called them specifically because you were rallying your peeps. And then they get over there, and they go all ho-hum on telling you their sob story. And you're like, this is ridiculous. Like, you're supposed to be sobbing with me, right? That's what we do. He says, listen, it could be way worse. I know it's the last thing you want to hear. Many of you guys in the battle right now, it's the last thing you want to hear. But it could be. You could be in a situation right now where God's saying, all right, what are you going to choose? Are you going to die now, or are you going to continue to live in the filth that you're being buried by? Which one? You pick. Then all of a sudden, this battle becomes super real, doesn't it? Feels way more like a war than it does just a nice idea. Last question I have about battling with sin is this Are you sure you're fighting? Have you convinced yourself that you are and you're really not? Have you convinced yourself that? by struggling habitually with the same sin for years and years that you're still really fighting it because you think about it. Can I tell you this? Thinking about something doesn't mean you're fighting against it. It Burdening you and weighing you down doesn't mean you're battling against it. So the scripture says, If you're there, burdened way down in the fight, it could be worse. You look to Jesus. You compare yourself and your situation to what he endured. And there's something incredibly encouraging about that. So I thought we'd have some fun. All this talk about comparing ourselves to Jesus got me thinking. So let's compare ourselves real quick. Um, Just again for fun. So I picked some random categories here. Completely random, I promise. Uh, so as I'm talking through these, just kind of, you know, think about yourself in comparison to Jesus. If you don't know a whole lot about him, I'll, you know, try to fill in some blanks. Okay, so you versus Jesus on love. And again, we're just saying, like, who wins, okay? Like, who's, who's more loving in this case? I'm, you know, so ponder, I know it's going to take a lot of discernment. Uh, graciousness, okay? Like, someone's like, oh, I, dude, I totally got that. Like, I'm... Okay, uh, generous, listener, teacher, faithful, miracles, I, that, that one's kind of fun, right? Like you, got, you got the leg up on Jesus on miracles, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, dude, you should have been with me last week, it was great, you know, no, I need some miracle up on my van right now. Anywho, um, so uh, at least from what I can tell, this is how this pans out, next slide, uh, Jesus pretty much uh, wins all, all, every category there, like, Agree? Are we just in agreement? Okay. Uh, although, uh, coming in, uh, in in a late round uh, victory, we actually, next slide, we get that one. You know? Sinning, we got that. You know? There's our ex. You're all in super encouraged now. Uh, take that. Take, go to the next slide. That's scary. Um, for many of you, this is very difficult, the comparison to Jesus. Because your instant rationale is, yeah, he's God, so shouldn't he? Like, shouldn't he just knock all of these out of the park, pool holes, all of these? That's a, I'm a Cubs fan, so that's the slide there to the Cardinals. Like, shouldn't he just 
He's the God. I mean, so Jesus, listen, the scripture says that, that he came and endured experiencing temptation as fully God and fully man. It wasn't a God not in pain on a cross. It was a God-man enduring the wrath of God, feeling the nails and the spikes. Are you with me? The whips, it wasn't pomp and circumstance. It wasn't acting. He wasn't faking the wince. He was feeling the pain. And so the comparison is not just encouraging, but it is right. But we're back to where we started. Where we started was, do you spend the majority of your life comparing and contrasting you versus someone else? That pendulum swings to two extremes. You start comparing yourself to others, what happens? Uh, One side of the pendulum swings to hatred. Anybody? You've been comparing yourself to this person for three, four years. You consider them one of your best friends. And really deep down, the whole relationship is just because you need them. But really, you hate them because they got it better than you. Got more stuff, more privileges, their marriage rocks. Make more money, their life seems easier. They got the major they wanted, whatever it is. That pendulum of comparison, it either swings to hatred or the other side is what? Idolatry, worship. Many of you guys in your comparison of others, you see how awesome, spectacular, incredible this individual has it or is in any particular number of categories. And it creates a sense of idolatry in you over them. So I I just want you to pull back for a second and ask yourself, in the relationships right now that you feel like you're really struggling, which side is the pendulum swinging to you? Are there some you're worshiping and you need to repent of that? Are there others that you're hating and you're faking the relationship and you need to repent of that? Obviously, the balance of those two things is what? Is encouragement. Is I compare myself to Hadley's pursuit of the Lord and watching his passion for the Lord, I'm stirred in a healthy way. See what I'm saying? I'm stirred in a healthy way, and so my heart begins to beat faster about who God is. I'm not worshiping Hadley. I'm changing my heart to become more affectionate of God. Now, crazy, listen to this. Crazy, crazy, crazy thing. Why do you think the writer chose the language of comparison in this scripture? This is so awesome. If the pendulum in our personal relationships Swings to hatred or swings to worship. Then the thought is, if you begin to compare yourself to Jesus, the the pendulum has the propensity to swing where? To worship. That this list actually doesn't condemn us. Our first thoughts are, oh yeah, of course he is. He's God. Our first thought is, he's God. Look at who he is. He is more loving, more gracious, more faithful, more awesome than anything I will ever be. And for some, guess what? When it comes to Jesus, the pendulum has swung where? Hatred. Nope. Not me. 
Compare myself to you, I'll take myself all day long. And there's many in our culture, maybe even in this room, that are denying the name of Jesus, saying, I want nothing to do with him. And in turn, you're hating Jesus. You're the sinful being hostile against the sinless. You see how ridiculous it sounds now. Again, our belief system isn't wrapped around that, but that's where the pendulum has swung. And listen, in Christianity, there is no such thing as the pendulum balance. There's no middle ground. There's no lukewarm. There's no maybe or check here if you kinda. It's either worship God in my comparison of him or it's dislike of God, hatred. He's not my God. So is it possible that the writer of Hebrews knows and knew through the inspiration of God how prone we are to compare? And by bringing our minds and our hearts into a comparison of Jesus, The thinking was, in reaction to this, they will worship. Because who are they? They're Jewish believers who are struggling to endure, who are getting consumed by their weariness or uh, faint-heartedness. Is it possible that in saying, listen, compare yourself to Christ, it could be worse, consider him. You haven't suffered to the shedding of your blood. Be encouraged. How? By worshiping him. Nothing else. Just being consumed in his awe. You see what I'm saying? I look at this list, and it's, it can continue to be lengthy, by the way. And I say, I want to let the naturalness of my comparison against others turn to a natural tendency to constantly compare myself to Christ. And in doing so, I'll put his character on the throne where it should be and see myself in light of it instead of vice versa. And that will create a life of worship. And then my weariness and faint-heartedness are prevented. Anyone want some of that? Where my emotions aren't consumed anymore by self-loathing thoughts. Guess what they're consumed by? The reality of the glory of God. And when that balance happens, my friends, any trial, hostility, hardship, reality, minivan situation that you come to, the comparison in the bleakness pushes me to my knees in worship. Stand together with me, would you? I just don't think we get it. I just don't think we understand. I think there's still something in us that's holding out for some other piece of all this. It's going to come together someday. And in my opinion, listen, it's the broken blood of Jesus. It's right here where all of this comparison comes to a head. And if you came in this room here tonight unaware of who Jesus is, if you came in this room tonight weary and faint-hearted and not knowing where to turn, let me encourage you with this. The message of who Jesus is never gets old. And God's love and mercy and grace, he sent his son to die on a cross and his blood means something, the blood shed. It means you can be forgiven of all the shame that you feel in your battle against sin. And right now you don't even know it's sin, but it is. 
Sin, my friends, is hatred towards God. God cannot be near sin. But because of the broken body of Jesus, the scripture says we are friends of God. Sons and daughters of the king. And there was a night right before he dies where Jesus breaks the bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. You take and eat. Why? Because you're going to remember when you take and eat, you're going to compare yourself to me and trust me, my sacrifice will be better. So he says, take and eat. And do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus takes the cup. An amazing moment in the scripture where he uses the word covenant. He says, This cup represents the blood of the new covenant. Knowing that there's still opportunity for him to stop short, but he doesn't. Whipped, spat on, bleeds. And that blood means forgiveness of sins. So listen, all I have to ask tonight is, is he worthy of worship or not? As you look at those things, as you consider who he is, as you think on Jesus, listen, is he worthy of worship? Why are we waiting? Why are we sitting back on our heels? What happened to the expression? What happened to the passion? What happened to the zeal that this was actually God, that it wasn't just some slide on a screen? My prayer tonight is that the broken body of Christ and the blood of, of the shed blood of him on a cross stirs our affections for him. That we consider who we are in light of him, my friends, and that instantly reveals how great he is. Are you with me? And so this meal tonight is a meal for believers, those who trust in Jesus. And here at Matthias, we take the Lord's Supper by pulling off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup. And I pray tonight for you that this walk for you, that this opportunity to remember Jesus is a chance to say thank you for me in comparison to you being nothing. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're worthy to worship. And so then... I want to consider you more. I want to pray for us tonight that God will soften our hearts, prepare our hearts to worship and respond. So will you pray with me? Come on. Father, uh, I just say tonight that you are who you said you are. And we rest and trust in that. I pray, Father, for hearts in this room right now to be softened by the reality of your truth. I pray that, God, that we feel the truth. God, I pray for those who are just battling against sin tonight, who just feel so weary and faint-hearted. God, please help them consider you. God, please encourage them tonight on the hamster wheel. God, please just stir their hearts, Father. I pray tonight for a newfound affection of you in our hearts. I pray, God, that we won't lay our head on the pillow one more night just saying another okay day. God, thank you for who you are. The joy of you is my strength. God, give us a new joy tonight. Wake us up from our slumber. We thank you, God, for your sacrifice. We have nowhere else to go, God. Respond when you're ready, church.